Uh, my name is Melinda Salisbury and I am a YA author, author of the fantasy series The Sinita's Daughter Trilogy. I, I guess the first thing, Melinda, is, I mean, you have already achieved so much more than most people have in their entire lifetime. You've won multiple international awards for your writing. You've got best-selling literature. Um, I, well, first of all, let's just, just confirm. Do you mind me asking what age you are now? I do. I'm not going to tell you. <gasps> I, I, never, I never, because women are held to such a very odd standard of our ages and stuff. So I never ever say younger than 80, older than 10. <laughs> I like that. Is that something you're going to stick with then throughout your career? I mean, uh, yeah, until I, I guess at some point I'll just start getting Botox and then hopefully no one will ever know. Um, I, feel, I feel like with them, women are already held to such ridiculous standards in terms of everything. And I feel like ageing particularly on women, um, it's, it's, it's a standard by which they're judged which doesn't hold up across the board, so I never say. Do you know, that's interesting and I would agree with you. And when people ask my age, I just say, well, I'm Christy aged because that's, you know, because I'm just Christy. <laughs> oh, excellent. Yeah, so there you that's go. Um, like but it's interesting that you say that because of, like I said, what you have achieved so far at such a young age. So regardless of your gender, are you not sort of proud of how far you've come in a very short space of time? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's been a bit of a surprise as well because I never planned to be a writer when I was growing up, it was never, it was never, I wasn't the person who dreamed of doing that as a child, he said. So, so yeah, what did you want to be then? I didn't know. I grew up, um, I grew up on a housing estate um, and um, when you live on housing estates, you are usually very poor and we were. Um, I, both, neither of my parents worked, so we were receiving benefits. I had free school dinners and terrible, those terrible cheap trainers <laughs> and um, quite socioeconomically disadvantaged, as they say now. And um, the, the thing with writing is, up until the internet became such a thing, um, it was a very mysterious kind of job to have. wasn't very open. There was no clear career path for it. Um, so I was under the impression, based on what I did know, that writing was for very rich people who went to Oxford and Cambridge and lived in London and probably came from the Dickens dynasty or the Austen dynasty. I ruled out the idea of any kind of creative job because I didn't think it was for the likes of me. Um, and it was only a little later on. Um, like, I loved reading my whole life. I loved stories. I was a huge Harry Potter fan as a kid. Absolutely huge. Grew up with Harry Potter. Um, and it was only when I started to look on the internet um, between books for Harry Potter things when I saw all these interviews where they, um, the, the papers would publish so much about how J.K. Rowling, she was on benefits. She lived in an attic in Edinburgh and like, she wrote by candlelight and there was no heating. And I was like, she was obviously quite poor and she managed to do it. So maybe I can too. What what were you actually like as a child? Um, really quiet, really introverted, really weird, I would go as far as <laughs> I, I lived my entire life in books. I didn't really have any friends. I tried in primary school to make friends by um, creating an animal club um, so we could meet at lunchtime and talk about animals. But I wanted to talk about the Latin names of animals and um, what their poo looked like and how you could track them in the wild. And it turns out none of my peers were quite as invested in this as I was. I would take apart, owl, I'd find owl pellets and I would take them into school and be like, oh, look, look, it's a shrimp boat. And then it's disgusting, it's too. But I don't know <laughs> But do you think that, because, you know, you've mentioned what your life was like as a child and, and living on the estate with uh, housing benefits, everything like that. So do you think you, you turn to writing as a sort of escape from that then to create your own worlds? Because the worlds are, are very sort of intense and detailed and, and very unlike our worlds. I don't know. Like, um, like I, I say I never wanted to be a writer, but I was absolutely um, a storyteller from a very young age. I liked playing with toys, as you do. And, like, we were poor, but I still had toys. But the toys I favoured were the toys that didn't have kind of stories already associated with them. So I found, like, I loved Polly Pockets and I loved Barbie and Cindy. 
but those characters already had such a huge personality and a world established for them. So I would like to play my nan had these, and this is a particular, again, illustrating what a very weird child I was, had all these wonderful toys, but my toy of choice were um, these tiny glass beads that my nan would put in her her garden, in her plants, and I would take them and sort them by colour, and um, so all of the blue beads, of which there were the most of, they became the general citizens, and the red beads, there were only a few, so they became the royals, and the green beads were the baddies, and the yellow beads were the, were the guards and the palace staff. And I created this entire fictional world, which um, actually quite closely resembles the world I later ended up writing about. And I would play like, these hugely elaborate games with these class beads. It would go on for days. Like I would stop playing at the end of the day and pick right back up the next day as though I was playing this episodic game. And they would go on for weeks and then that game would finish and I would reboot it um, and start the story again. So I think I have actually been a storyteller all my life. I just didn't realise that the games I was playing and the worlds I was creating fed into what would eventually become my job. That is absolutely fascinating. I wonder as well if at the time when you were growing up, and I guess partly anyway because of your circumstances, I'm guessing the internet wasn't quite as a, as much of a thing then. And so do you think that if you had had the internet at your fingertips, so to speak, that you would have been that sort of imaginative in creating those worlds? It's actually what I went on to do. Um, I left home quite early on and um, the, the house I lived in, we had, they had the internet there, they had dial-up and it was really exciting. And I just, um, like I, I did... Um, it would have been IT GCSE at the time, so I got to study the internet um, at school. Um, and I found, through being a huge Harry Potter fan, I found fan fiction websites. So then I started to write Harry Potter fan fiction, which I believe is still out there, although I'm never telling anyone where it is. And then I, I got rid of it as much as I could. Um, but yeah, so I, I absolutely, it's a tool that I definitely did utilise. But again, I didn't take it seriously in terms of it could be a job because I was so caught in this mindset of not for you, not for you, not for you. It's interesting that you said you, you've you sort of gotten rid of that Harry Potter fan fiction because I wonder, obviously, you know, you, you've sort of your author's voice must have been developing over these years. So I wonder if when you look back, do, do you kind of ever look back at your earlier work and do do you notice your author's voice developing? There, are, yeah, there are certain there are certain things I like to do in books. Um, certain things like they're always very politically driven. There's always a very snarky character, and I have poached lines from myself from earlier work that made it into the book and, and methods of speech and stuff. So I can see I, I I never really took author voice seriously until I started to read back my own work and I realised that I do have a very distinctive style and methodology when I'm creating stuff. Yeah. And so so where then you talk about creating stuff, where do your characters actually come from then? Because they are fascinating, you know, and they do sort of they break all the sort of stereotypes, really. I mean, when, when I think of the fact you've got a, a female 17 year old executioner, you know, in Twiller and that, all these different characters, they are very, very intriguing. So where do they actually come from? I wish I could say, people always ask this, it's one of the questions that authors always ask, where do your eyes come from? And I feel like for a lot of us, if we knew, we would sell the ideas instead mm-hmm. of trying to write books because it would be so much more lucrative and so much less painful. And Twilla came to me fully formed, and um, this is a really embarrassing story. I was singing in the shower, as quite a lot of people do, um, but obviously when your bathroom is tiled, there's excellent reverb in there, so everyone sounds significantly better at singing than they are. And I got caught in this trap. I was probably singing something from Mulan. I'm thinking, God, I'm so good at this. This is like this should be my job. I'd make an amazing singer. And then it kind of went off from there. I was like, what if I was a singer? And what if it was my job? But what if it wasn't always joyful for me? What if I had to do it and I had no choice? And then from there, Twilla kind of popped, almost fully formed into my head, this young girl who had this one great joy, which was singing. And it was 
it was kind of taken and used against her by what would then go on to become the king and queen of Lorme. And so um, there's, there's still vestiges of it in the series, how much singing needs to Twilla and how it's, it's that that's used um, to kind of coerce her into this position as the executioner. So she she came from there. Um, but I think, and I think other authors would agree with me, you put a lot more of yourself into your first books than you've ever mean to. Because you're writing, like, it's the first time you make people up, you do tend to base off characters you know in order to have that kind of realism. So there is an awful lot of 17-year-old me in Twilla, in the sense that she's very naive and very trusting and very desperate for affection and willing to be loved and accepted to the point where she doesn't question things which a slightly savvier or, or well-adjusted, more well-adjusted person might not accept as readily. So do you think those are the type of people that you were writing to at the time then? Was that sort of the audience that you were picturing reading the story? I think I very much wrote it for uh, um, Teenage Me. I think um, all authors, again, their first, their first book is the book that they desperately needed as a teenager. And that's what comes out in what they write. And I certainly feel that way about Sinita's daughter. I absolutely, as a teenager, needed to read about um, this girl who um, appeared very powerless and very and very frightened and very naive and watching her slowly come around to courage. And um, we see, we talk a lot in the industry about strong female characters and how important it is for um, young women, particularly to have role models. But the problem we, we sort of had with strong female characters is that for the longest time, all of their strengths came from traditionally masculine characteristics. So we would, we would term um, a character strong if she was stoic mm-hmm. and reckless and kind of immune to love and not quick to laugh and not able to make herself vulnerable, which are all um, you know, markers of traditional masculine pride. Mm-hmm. So we were still, um, so we were basically redefining strength as being um, masculine um, traditionally, which isn't really the best measure of strength in, 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 in boys or girls or men and women. It's much, there's strength in vulnerability, there's strength in loving, there's strength in opening yourself up, the strength in being able to make mistakes and, and recover from them. So I needed a heroine who could do that. I needed a heroine who could start from a place that was traditionally perhaps deemed more feminine and then go on to be a stronger character in her own right without kowtowing to um, this archaic idea of what strength truly is. Absolutely, because, you know, really, we should be celebrating uh, the, the different sides of both of our genders, really, shouldn't we? And like you said, picking out the bits that we have that are strong in our femininity or our masculinity. But it sounds very much like in, in writing this that you've maybe sort of really latched onto something with a, a real understanding of people. So do, do you feel like your writing has sort of helped you in that respect? Um, I, I don't think any of my friends would ever accuse me of understanding people very well. <laughs> <laughs> I wish they would. I'm, I think I'm a great... Well, not a great observer, but I, I'm better at observing people but not understanding them. I do feel I've, I've um, I don't know, got to know myself a little bit better to do it, purely because when you write a character and you can see them making bad choices, you have the opportunity to go, oh, the reason they're doing that is because that's something I would do and I can clearly see from the outside that it's a terrible decision, don't do that. And um, hopefully you'll have time to backtrack and, and rectify that in your own life. Um, at least that's the theory, I think. And and Sinita's Daughter, obviously, it became a trilogy. And then, of course, you got the companion stories, too. Had you always intended it to be that way? Or was that something that sort of happened when publishers came on board? And It wasn't ever intended to be published. I wrote Sinita. I actually had um, my first book that I'd written. Um, I was looking for an agent with that. And it was getting like, 
relatively good feedback as far as rejections go. Like lots of lots of agents requested the full manuscript, which is a good sign. But all of them came back and sort of said, we can't sell this story, basically because it was kind of a rip-off of Harry Potter. And <laughs> I took a young boy and I put him in a magical world. And, and I thought because the magical world was Camelot, not Hogwarts, that um, it was obviously very different. But much savvier, cleverer people than me were like, this is, this, I know you love Harry Potter. This is just Harry Potter. This is more Harry Potter fan fiction. Stop doing this. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, while that had been on submission, I started to write the story about this girl, um, this girl who's Twilla, to keep me occupied. So when um, Claire, who is now my agent, came back and said, I really like the way you write, cannot sell this Harry Potter ripoff, do you have anything else? I was able to say, yeah, actually, yes, I do. I've just finished something, would you like to see it? And so when it was first written, it was very much intended as a standalone, and I never really intended anyone else to see it. And it was my agent and then my eventual publisher who said, we think this has serious potential. Is there anything in this you could you could tease out? Because um, the first draft ended very definitively. And there was sort of like, would, do you think it's possible? Like, is there a continuation there? And um, I wanted to say yes so badly, but I didn't know if there genuinely was. And I think because I'm such a great reader, you can tell a lot of the time when a series wasn't supposed to be as long as mm-hmm. it was. And I didn't, want, I didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to be the person who was just turning out books um, because I wanted the contract and the money. So I went had a really long think, and the only thing I could think of was to kind of almost reboot the books from a different perspective. And um, it was as I started to explore that idea that I realised I could do that and then bring those two narratives together and make an entire series arc from both girls' voices. So now we have Twilla, who begins the series, Erin, who picks up the baton for book two, and then the two girls finish it together. As for the short stories, I again, I wrote those for me because I needed to know that backstory. I needed to know the history of the Sleeping Prince and how it worked. I needed to know who the bringer was and, and where he'd come from and what he was doing. That was very much um, very much from, from my knowledge and my needs. And it was only when I said to my agent, oh, I've done them. I've, I've written these stories. And she was like, I'll have a look. And we sent them to my publisher who were very interested. It must be a really interesting thing to actually hand over your writings and your characters and your stories to, to other people, whether it's agents or, you know, when it actually gets released to the wider world. What does that feel like? Honestly, terrifying because you spend so long um, and these people are yours and they're in your head and you are in complete control of their movements and how they're interpreted. And the second you hand it over to other people, they apply their experiences to it and their knowledge. And so what you have thought is a crystal clear interpretation is actually can be interpreted like numerous different ways, depending on where you're coming from. And so it's super weird, especially at the editing process. When someone comes in um, and says, oh, did, is this what you meant by this? And you're like, no, it's absolutely not what I meant today. <laughs> and only to then realise that perhaps that may have opened a new door and a new possibility. Books are so personal and so, like, so subjective. And I've read plenty of hugely popular books that I just haven't made a solid connection with. And obviously, when I, I put my book out, um, my initial thought was, of course, everyone's going to connect with this book. It's brilliant. Like, I've done my very best. And then um, that's not always what happens. Like, sometimes people haven't enjoyed it as much as I hope they would and have been felt confident enough to tell me that, which is a terrible thing to hear at first. But at the same time, um, I, I made up a really stupid analogy once at a talk and I keep turning it out, so I'm just going to do it again. And the analogy is that Coldplay don't write songs for Slipknot fans. <laughs> That's so very good, yeah. It, it, you write what's in your lane and the right people will find it and connect with it and enjoy it and the people whom it isn't meant for, and maybe at that particular point in time, they won't get anything from it and that's okay. They'll go off and they'll find their songs or their books and, and you don't need to worry about that. It's not your responsibility. 
your responsibility is to stay true to the people who did need that from you in the first place. Very well said. But that does then raise another question then about the fact that it looks like it might be made into a TV series. Is that right? And if, if so, that then presumably puts you right back in that spot again of thinking, oh, what are they going to do with it? <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel too bad about this. It has been optioned by Little Island Productions um, to have a treatment in the works. I have read the treatment and I think it's brilliant. I actually, and I probably shouldn't say this, I think it's better than the book. Um, <laughs> Chris Wooding, who is writing the treatment, he was an author that I, I adored anyway. So when they said um, he would be the one writing the treatment, I was super excited. And then when, when I read it, his, his vision and the things that he's pulled out of the world and the potential he's seen for growth and change, just extraordinary to the point where I kind of want him to write his version of the books too, because I would absolutely read them. I think the thing with the, the TV series is, in the first instance, I have I've, I've finished the series, I've written the canon, it's not a George R. R. Martin situation where it's going to leap on ahead of me, I, I'm done, I, my version exists, and that can't be taken away, and it's kind of a win-win situation for me, so the TV series might do exceptionally well, which means people will want to read the books, which is good news for me, or the TV series might be awful, in which case people might want to read the books because they think they'll be better. Again, it's good for me, I can't lose in this scenario. And do you know um, sort of where it's going to be? Because obviously now there's so many different platforms and avenues, isn't there, for series? And I know the likes of American Gods and things like that have ended up on, on uh, Amazon and Netflix and places like that. Is it, is it going to be those sort of platforms or are we talking sort of terrestrial TV? Do you know yet? I don't. I have absolutely no idea. The last piece of information I got was that a treatment of the script, um, a treatment was being written, um, which is basically where they do like a huge overarching synopsis of their vision for for the, um, how they, they think the series would work. And I guess they take, they shop that around and see if anyone takes it. But I don't really know. I'm so ignorant about the TV side of stuff. But I'm so excited about it at the same time. And then, of course, when it comes to it, when it's when it goes into production, do you think you'll have a say over who plays the characters? Because that, that must be quite a big thing for you as well. I think I will get a minor amount of input. But again, I don't, like, I'm not a casting director. I don't care. And I think... I keep harking back to Harry Potter, but I went to the Harry Potter school of book-to-film adaptations, um, in which you don't always get what you want or expected. It took a long time for me to realise how different those mediums were and that you couldn't do a direct translation. Mm-hmm. So I am super happy to leave it in the hands of the experts um, who are much more qualified and capable of doing this. And I can just sit and bask in the secondary glory and hopefully have a tiny walk on part. That would be that'd be pretty exciting. Oh, that'd be amazing. I'd love it. <laughs> so, OK, so tell us then about Flawed now, because I'm really intrigued by this idea of a group of authors coming together to, to sort of write these stories. Do you actually communicate with the other authors or how, do, how does this actually work? We do. We have week, um, weekly meetings. We have monthly meetings. Um, it started, I think we were all... Um, we were kind of sought out by Rachel Petty, who is the editor at Macmillan, who commissioned the project. And um, we didn't know much about it. Like, I think it was only two days before the first meeting that we finally found out who the other authors involved were. So we kind of all agreed to take part in it, more or less blind. And then we went and had this first meeting and uh, Rachel gave us a very loose premise for it. And then we sat and brainstormed for three hours together, um, like coming up with potential character ideas and potential scenarios. And then based on that, we all went away and developed our part of the the story. It's really hard to talk about because a lot of it's still under wraps. There are seven of us working on it, um, but we are not allowed to reveal which particular parts we're working on. Um, So there are six named characters and then one person acting as the narrator, but we are not allowed to reveal yet who is doing what. 
which is like it's very exciting particularly for me because I'm the only fantasy author on the roster I was going to ask are you all different genres so you are then yeah Everyone else is a super, super respected and prestigious contemporary writer who has earned their spot on the team. And I feel like I'm the maverick wildcard option. Um, so yeah, but, but I mean, it's even more exciting for me because it means I get to flex muscles that I, I haven't ever flexed before writing-wise. And um, do you have any idea when this, this might sort of come to light, this project? July. It's um, published dates next July. Our deadline is the end of November for the, um, the completed first draft. And then we'll move straight into editorial um, so I guess proof copies out sometime spring next year with publication in summer. Fantastic, very exciting. But but before all of that and before your deadline, you're coming to the Isle of Man, which we're very excited about. So tell us about what you're going to be doing while you're here. I am doing two days of school visits where I'm going to go around and speak to students So that. And then on the Friday night, um, I am doing an event at Waterstone Douglas. Um, which I believe is a Q&A session, uh-huh. and I'll be signing after that. Saturday, I think I'm doing a small panel with Sally Nichols at some point in the day, or a small event with Sally Nichols in the day. And then Sunday, I've been asked to judge um, a writing contest. Um, so I think I'm going to pop along and do that, and then I'm going to eat a massive Sunday dinner, I guess. <laughs> Excellent. I think, you, I think you'll have earned it after all that. Do you do many <laughs> um, literary festivals then? Do you enjoy doing this kind of thing? I do, and I do a lot. And most of this October, for some unknown reason, I'm doing quite a lot of events. But I do. I love the festivals. I like one of the the nicest things is getting to meet readers, especially at events um, in the public, because the people who go to them have chosen to be there, which usually means they they read the book or they love the book or they want to read the book, so they're already very invested and very excited, which is really really lovely. Like when you write, I think. It's because you see, like, you secretly do desperately want an audience and you do desperately want the approval and validation. I mean, not so secretly in my case, I very much want the validation <laughs> and approval and applause and accolades and all the lovely things that come along with it. So it's it's probably my favourite part of my job, um, aside from when I get given a new map, is when I get to go out and actually meet readers and speak to them and, and about the books and find out what it is that they like about it and what it is that they do, whether they're writers or um, big readers and who they're reading as well. Well, it's excellent to think that, you know, you mentioned you, you enjoy the accolades. You certainly have plenty of them already, which is quite <laughs> wonderful. Done right. You've done all right. right. I know. It's incredible. <laughs> really well done. And uh, I, I'm intrigued because obviously bringing it back to the beginning, you mentioned uh, how you never thought you were actually going to end up doing this, but you were inspired by having read that interview um, about Harry Potter and J.K. Rowling, obviously. Um, if there was someone who was listening to this right now who is a, a potential young writer who's thinking, oh, yeah, but you can't really make any kind of career out of this what would you say to them i'd say i'm the living proof you absolutely can make a career out of it writing is now my my full-time job um since last april i have been working full-time as a writer um, and i think if i can do it i don't have any qualifications in writing i've never studied it professionally um i stopped dead at gcse english um i think if i can do it and, and make a living out of it literally anybody can it just takes a lot of perseverance and a lot of luck Fantastic. Well, where can people find out more about your work then if they don't already know it, obviously? I have um, I have a website, which is melindasalsbury.com. And there are links on there to the synopses of the books, um, including my next solo project. So, But speaking of the website, though, I have to ask you, Jeff Goldblum? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone always asks that. Uh, when, I first, when I first set up my website, I was a debut author. I didn't really have any events. 
no, no, no one asked me any questions. We didn't need an FAQ. Um, no one wanted to get in contact with me. I had one book to write about and I needed to fill space on this website page. So I decided to put a Jeff Goldblum page on and I also had a food page for a while as well where I just posted photos of really nice meals I had. <laughs> just basically to fill space. I didn't like I never thought anyone would look at this thing, but um I'd been told I needed one, so I set one up. So I, and the food page ended up going. I really loved the the Jeff Goldblum page and um a lot of people would comment on it. So now I I just kept it it's just that he's, he's a very special man a very special man yeah maybe, maybe one day you'll get to meet him maybe he'll be in one of your future productions I don't think that would be a good idea to be honest for his sake <laughs> Fan girly. I think he'd be better off maintaining some kind of some kind of distance from him <laughs> well we are very much looking forward to having you here this weekend and uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us Melinda you're very welcome thank you for having me